Chapter 13 of Key Out of Time by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Key Out of Time, Chapter 13 The Seagate of the Foana. Ross raised a shell cup to his lips, but hardly sipped the fiery brew it contained. This was a gesture of ceremony, but he wanted a steady head and a quick tongue for any coming argument. Torgholm, Afrukta, Angal, the three commanders of the rover cruisers, Jazia, who represented the mysterious power of Futka, Vistor, and some other subordinate officers, Karara, himself, with Loketh hovering behind, a council of war. But summoned against whom? The Terran had come too far afield from his own purpose, to reach Ash in the Foana Keep and to further his own plans was a task he doubted his ability to perform. His attack on the Baldies had made him too important to the rovers for them to allow him willingly to leave them on a quest of his own. "'These star-men,' Ross set down the cup, tried to choose the most telling words in his limited Hawaiian vocabulary, "'possess weapons and powers you cannot dream of, that you have no defense against. Back at Kinad we were lucky.' The Salkars attacked their sub and halted broadcast powering their flamers. Otherwise we could not have taken them, even though we were many against their few. Now you talk of hunting them in their own territory, on land and in the mountains where they have their base. That would be folly akin to swimming barehanded to front a Salkar. So that we must sit and wait for them to eat us up? flared Ongal. I say it is better to die fighting with one's blade wet. Do you not also wish to take at least one of the enemy with you when you fight to that finish? Ross countered. These could kill you before you came in blade range. You had no trouble with that weapon of yours, Afrukta spoke up. I have told you, this weapon was stolen from them. I have only one, and I do not know how long it will continue to serve me or whether they have a defense against it. Those we took were naked to any force, for their broadcast had failed them. But to smash blindly against their main base would be the act of madmen. The Salkars opened a way for us. That was Torgal. But we cannot move a pack of those inland to the mountains, Vister pointed out reasonably. Ross studied the captain. That Torgal was groping for a plan and that it had to be a shrewd one, the Terran guessed. His respect for the rover commander had been growing steadily since their first meeting. The cruiser raiders had always been captained by the most daring men of the rover clans. But Ross was also certain that a successful cruiser commander must possess a level-headed leaven of intelligence and be a strategist of parts. The Hawaiian force needed a key which would open the Baldy base as the Salkars had opened the lagoon, and all they had to aid them was a handful of facts gained from their prisoners. Oddly enough, the picklock to the captives' minds had been produced by the dolphins. Just as Tino Rao and Tawa had formed a bridge of communication between the Terran and Loketh, so did they read and translate the thoughts of the galactic invaders. For the Baldies, among their own kind, were telepathic, vocalizing only to give orders to inferiors. Their capture by these primitive inferiors had delivered the first shock, 
and the mind-probes of the dolphins had sent the supermen close to the edge of sanity. To accept an animal form as an equal had been shattering. But the starmen's thoughts and memories had been winnowed at last and the results spread before this impromptu council. Rovers and Terrans were briefed on the invaders' master plan for taking over a world. Why they desired to do so even the dolphins had not been able to discover. Perhaps they themselves had not been told by their superiors. It was a plan almost contemptuous in its simplicity, as if the galactic force had no reason to fear effective opposition. Except in one direction. One single direction. Ross's fingers tightened on the shell cup. Had Torgal reached that conclusion yet, the belief that the Foana could be their key? If so, they might be able to achieve their separate purposes in one action. "'It would seem that they are wary of the Fuana,' he suggested, alert to any tell-tale response from Torgal. But it was Jazia who answered the Terran's half-question. "'The Fuana have a powerful magic. They can order wind and wave, man and creature, if so be their will. Well, might these killers fear the Fuana? Yet now they move against them," Ross pointed out, still eyeing Torgal. The captain's reply was a small, quiet smile. Not directly, as you have heard. It is all part of their plan to set one of us against the other, letting us fight many small wars, so use up our men while they take no risks. They wait the day when we shall be exhausted, and then they will reveal themselves to claim all they wish. So today they stir up trouble between the Wreckers and the Foana, knowing that the Foana are few. Also they strive in turn to anger us by raids, allowing us to believe that either the Wreckers or the Foana have attacked. Thus—he held up his left thumb, made a pincers of right thumb and forefinger to close upon it—they hope to catch the Foana between Wreckers and Rovers because the Fawana are those they reckon the most dangerous they move against them now, using us and weakening our forces into the bargain. A plan which is clever, but the plan of men who do not like to fight with their own blades. They are worse than the coast scum, these cowards, Ongal spat. Torgal smiled again. That is what they believe we will say, kinsmen, and so underrate them. By our customs, yes. They are cowards. But what care they for our judgments? Did we think of the Salkars when we used them to force the lagoon? No. They were only beasts to be our tools. So now it is the same with us, except that we know what they intend, and we shall not be such obedient tools. If the Fawana are our answer, then—he paused, gazing into his cup as if he could read some shadowy future there. If the Fawana are the answer, then what? Ross pushed. Instead of fighting the Fawana, we must warm, cherish, try to ally ourselves with them, and do all that while we still have time. Just how do we do these things? demanded Ongal. The Fawana you would warn, cherish, claim as allies are already our enemies. Were we not on the way to force their sea gate only days ago? There is no chance of seeking peace now. 
And have the Finn ones not learned from the women-killers that already there is an army of wreckers camped about the Citadel to which these Sons of the Shadow plan to lend certain weapons? Do we throw away three cruisers, all we have left, in a hopeless fight? Such is the counsel of one struck by loss of wits. There is a way, my way. Ross seized the opening. In the Fawana Citadel is my sword-lord, to whose service I am vowed. We were on our way to attempt his freeing when your ship picked us out of the waves. He is learned beyond me in the dealing with strange peoples, and if the Fawana are as clever as you say, they will already have discovered that he is not just a slave they claim from Lord Zahur. There it was in the open, his own somewhat tattered hope that Ash had been able to impress his captors with his knowledge and potential. Trained to act as contact man with other races, there was a chance that Gordon had saved himself from whatever fate had been planned for the prisoners the Fawana had claimed. If that happened, Ash could be their opening wedge in the Fawana stronghold. This also I know. That which guards the gate, which turns your minds whirling and sent you back from your raid, does not affect me. I may be able to win inside and find my clansmen, and in that doing treat with the Fawana. The Baldy prisoners had not underestimated the attack on the Fawana Citadel. As the rover cruisers beat in under the cover of night, the fires and torches of both besieged and besiegers made a wild glow across the sky. Only on the seaside of the fortress there was no sign of involvement. Whatever guarded the gate must still be in force. Ross stood with his feet well apart to balance his body against the swing of the deck. His suggestion had been argued over, protested, but at last carried with the support of Torgal and Jazia, and now he was to make his try. The sum of the rover's and Loketh's knowledge of the Seagate had been added for his benefit, but he knew that this venture must depend upon himself alone. Carrara, the Dolphins, the Hoikins were all too sensitive to the barrier. Torgal moved in the faint light. We are close, our power is ebbing. If we advance, we shall be drifting soon. It is time, then. Ross crossed to the rope ladder, but another was there before him. Carrara perched on the rail. He regarded her angrily. You can't go. I know, but we are still safe here. Just because you are free of one defense of the gate, Ross, do not believe that makes it easy. He was stung by her assumption that he could be so self-assured. I know my business." Ross pushed past her, swinging down the rope ladder, pausing only above water level to snap on flippers, make sure of the set of his weighted belt, and slide his gill mask over his face. There was a splash beside him as the net containing spare belt, flippers and mask hit the water, and he caught at it. These could provide Ash's escape from the fortress. The lights on the shore made a wide arc of radiance across the sea. As Ross headed toward the wave-washed coast, he began to hear shouting and other sounds which made him believe that the besiegers were in the midst of an all-out assault. Yet those distant fires and rocket-like blasts into the sky had a wavery blur, and Ross, making his way with the effortless water-cleaving of the diver, surfaced now and then to spot film curling up from the surface of the sea between the two standing rock pillars which marked the sea-gate. He was startled by a thunderous crack, 
rending the air above the small bay. Ross pulled to one of the pillars, steadied himself with one hand against it. Those twists of film rising from the surging surface were thickening. More tendrils grew out from the parent stems to creep along above the waves, raising up sprouts and branches in turn. A wall of mist was building between gate and shore. Again a thunderclap overhead. Involuntarily the Terran ducked. Then he turned his face up to the sky, striving to see any evidence of storm. What hung there sped the growth of the fog on the water, yet where the fog was gray-white it was a darkness spouting from the highest point of the citadel. Ross could not explain how he was able to see one shade of darkness against equal dusk, but he did. Or did he only sense it? He shook his head, willing himself to look away from the finger. Only it was a finger no longer. Now it was a fist, aimed at the stars it was fast blotting out. A fist rising to the heavens before it curled back, descending to press the fortress and its surroundings into rock and earth. Fog curled about Ross, spilled outward through the sea-gates. He loosed his grip on the pillar and dived, swimming on through the gap with the fortress of the Foana before him. There was a jetty somewhere ahead. That much he knew from Torgal's description. Those who served the Foana sometimes took sea-roads, and they had slim, fast cutters for such coastwise travel. Ross surfaced cautiously, to discover there was no visibility to wave-level. Here the mist was thick, a smothering cover so bewildering he was confused as to direction. He ducked below again and flippered on. Was his confusion born of the fog, or was it also in his head? Did he, after all, have this much reaction to the gate defense? Ross ducked that suspicion as he had ducked the moist blanket on the surface. He had come from the gate, which meant that the jetty must lie there. A few moments later Ross had proof that his sense of direction had not altogether failed him, when his shoulder grazed against a solid obstruction in the water and his exploring touch told him that he had found one of the jetty piles. He surfaced again and this time he heard not a thunder-roll but the sing-song chanting of the Foana. It was loud, almost directly above his head, but since the cotton mist held he was not afraid of being sighted. The chanter must be on the jetty and to Ross's right was a dark bulk which he thought was one of the cutters. Was a sortie by the besieged being planned? Then out of the night came a dazzling beam, well above the level of Ross's head, where he clung to the piling. It centered on the cutter, slicing into the substance of the vessel with the ease of steel-piercing clay. The chanting stopped on mid-note, broken by cries of surprise and alarm. Ross pressing against the pile, received a jolt from his belt-sonic. There must be a baldy sub in the basin inside the gate. Perhaps the flame-beam now destroying the cutter was to be turned on the walls of the keep in turn. Fawana chant again, low and clear, splashes from the water as those on the jetty cast into the sea objects Ross could not define. The Terran's body jerked, his mask smothered a cry of pain. About his legs and middle, immersed in the waves, there was cold so intense that it seared. Fear goaded him to pull up on one of the underbeams of the pier. He reached that refuge and rubbed his icy legs with what vigor he could summon. 
Moments later he crept along toward the shore. The energy ray had found another target. Ross paused to watch a second cutter sliced. If the counterstroke of the Fawana would rout the invaders, it had not yet begun to work. The net holding the extra gear, brought along in hopes of Ash's escape, weighed the Terran down, but he would not abandon it as he felt his way from one foot and hand hold to the next. The waves below gave off an icy exudation which made him shiver uncontrollably, and he knew that as long as that effect lasted he dared not venture into the sea again. Light. Along with the cold there was a phosphorescence on the water. White patches floating, dipping, riding the waves. Some of them gathered under the pier, clustering about the pilings. And the fog thinned with their coming, as if those irregular blotches absorbed and fed upon the mist. The Terran could see now he had reached the land end of the jetty. He wedged his flippers into his belt pulled on over his feet the covers of salkar hide Torgal had provided. Save for his belt, his trunks, and the gill-pack, Ross's body was bare and the cold caught at him. But, slinging the carry-net over his shoulder, he dropped to the damp sand and stood listening. The clamor of the attack which had carried all the way offshore to the rover-cruisers had died away, and there were no more claps of thunder. Instead there was now a thick wash of rain no more fire-rays as he faced seaward, and the fog was lifting, so Ross could distinguish the settling cutters, their bow still moored to the jetty. There was no movement there. Had those on the pier fled? Dot! Dash! Dot! Ross did not drop the net, but he crouched back in the half-protection of the piling. For a moment, which stretched beyond Terran time-measure, he froze so, waiting. Dot, dash, dot. Not the prickle induced by the enemy installations, it was a real coded call picked up by a sonic and one he knew. Don't rush, he told himself sharply, play it safe. By rights only two people in this time and place would know that call, and one would have no reason to use it. But a trap? This could be a trap. All of the Fawana powers had touched him a little in spite of his off-world skepticism. He could be lured now by someone using Ash's call. Ross stripped for action after a fashion, bundling the net and its contents into a hollow he scooped behind a pile well above the water level. The alien hand-weapon he had left with Carrara, not trusting it to the sea. But he had his diver's knife and his two hands which, by training, could be, and had been, deadly weapons. With the sonic against the bare skin of his middle, where it would register strongest, knife in hand, Ross moved into the open. The floating patches did not supply much light, but he was certain the call had come from the jetty. There was movement there, a flash or two. And the sonic? Ross had to be sure, very sure. The broadcast was certainly stronger when he faced in that direction. Dared he come into the open? Perhaps, in the dark, he could cut Ash away from his captors so they could swim for it together. Ross clicked a code reply. Dot, dot, dot. The answer was quick, imperative. Where? Surely no one but Ash could have sent that. Ross did not hesitate. Be ready. Escape. No. Even more imperative. Friends here. 
Had he guessed rightly? Had Ash established friendly relations with the Fuana? But Ross kept to the caution which had been his defense and armor so long. There was one question he thought only Ash could answer, something out of the past they had shared when they had made their first journey into time disguised as beaker traders of the Bronze Age. Deliberately he tapped that question. What did we kill in Britain? Tensely he waited, and when the reply came it did not pulse from the sonic under his fingers. Instead a well-remembered voice called out of the night. A white wolf! And the words were Terran English. Ash! Ross leapt forward, climbed toward the figure he could only dimly see. End of chapter 13